You're listening to Rounding at Rush, a Rush University Medical Center podcast that features the latest clinical advances, research, and innovations. I'm your host, Dan Dean. Joining Rounding at Rush today is Dr. Paul Kent, a pediatric hematologist oncologist in the Rush University System for Health. He is an associate professor in the Department of Pediatrics at Rush Medical College and is the medical director of the fibrolamellar carcinoma program at Rush. The focus of our conversation today centers on how he and Rush have pioneered new treatments for fibrolamellar carcinoma, a rare type of liver cancer that typically affects adolescents and young adults. In just the span of five years, Rush went from treating very few patients with this disease to now treating the largest number of patients in the United States. It's a privilege to have you on the show today, Dr. Kent. Thank you for inviting me. It's a privilege to be here. Let's start by talking about who the typical fibrolamellar cancer patient is and what makes this population unique. Yes, the typical fibrolamellar patient is a young adult. The median age actually is 21. It's equal male and female. They do not have underlying liver disease. In the past, it was thought to be a variant or in somehow connected to hepatocellular carcinoma, a very common cancer of older adults who do have liver disease, who have alcoholism or hepatitis. We now know that this is a completely separate condition and extraordinarily rare, whereas there's only two cases in every 10 million uh, patients for fibrolamellar, this is compared to over 200 cases of hepatocellular carcinoma. So it's much less than uh, one one hundredth of all hepatocellular cases. Typically, uh, their survival is very poor. The three-year survival is at best 70%, but other studies have shown it to be 40 the five-year survival, the very best you'll find is 50%, but most have about one-third living beyond uh, five years. The relapse rate is at least 80%. So it's a rare disease in desperate need of uh, new therapies. The biggest challenge, of course, is that we don't have the kind of randomized clinical data that that we're used to, that we like to have to guide us. There are no guidelines, not from the NCCN or any other authoritative body about how to treat this. So this leads to two problems. Number one is people will default to treating this the same way that they treat hepatocellular carcinoma. And this is a big mistake for two reasons. Number one, it's a completely different disease. There's a fusion protein that has been demonstrated to show that it's a completely different disease. And certainly the demographics prove that it's a different disease, young and healthy with no liver disease. Uh, So treating it like hepatocellular carcinoma is not going to work and is a mistake. And most of the rules for hepatocellular carcinoma don't apply. For example, rules such as you must remove all disease or there's no benefit rules that you can't do liver surgery if you still have lung metastasis, or you can't do a transplant if you have disease outside the liver and so on. Those rules don't apply. That radiation therapy doesn't work. That's also not true. So the rules of hepatocellular carcinoma being applied to this is the first problem we face. The second and third problem, the second problem is that without the lack of data, many doctors are unwilling to try something new. My argument would would be for a young, healthy person, instead of being focused on the side effects, you need to focus on how many years 
of life you can give them. And these patients tolerate it very well because they are healthy. They don't have cirrhosis. They're not elderly. They don't have diabetes and hypertension and uh, kidney disease and a whole mess of other problems that a typical elderly patient with hepatocellular carcinoma has, number one. And number two, they're not looking for a three or five year survival. They're looking for a 50 year survival. They're looking for a cure. And we look at these patients as curable. And even if they're stage four. So then the last problem is who sees them? Who is the expert? Is it adult oncology or pediatric oncology? Uh, the pediatric approach is always uh, much more aggressive. We are fortunate that our patients are so young and healthy. And also the people who walk into our door have the attitude of, I'll do whatever it takes. I'm willing to uh, tolerate the toxicity if it gives me a chance to live or live longer. We're often though, is not the case in the adult world. The patients are too weak to handle aggressive therapy and they may not be looking at uh, trying to be cured or a, a long life because it's not in their best interest given their current state. Their focus might be more on quality of life. So there's also a little bit of tension there about who should take uh, care of these patients. I would argue uh, if your body is more like a young person, it should be a pediatric oncologist, such as a 25-year-old healthy person, and not be worried so much about their age. If your body is more like an elderly patient, God love you in adult medicine that you're willing to take on patients with all those comorbidities. So given that, I mentioned in the introduction that five years ago, Rush was only treating very few patients with fibrolamellar cancer, and now treats the largest number of patients in the country. Can you take us through the journey of how Rush went from seeing basically zero patients to the largest number in such a short period of time? Yes, it was a very classic type of scenario that we've now seen played out again and again. A young woman who was right on the border between pediatric and adult uh, care, she had just turned uh, 18, came in otherwise healthy with shoulder pain, as the physicians know who are listening to me, shoulder pain can often be the sign of uh, liver disease. She was found to have a liver tumor. It was successfully removed by the surgeon, but there were lymph nodes that showed disease. Then she started looking for what to do next. She was given two completely different recommendations from pediatric oncology and adult oncology. She eventually went to MD Anderson. There was a clinical trial open for fibrolamellar that she was interested in. Unfortunately, she didn't qualify. She eventually went to three other hospitals in Chicago who were unwilling to try the MD Anderson protocol because the results had not yet been published. We said we would try the MD Anderson protocol and that's how it got started. From there, this family uh, connected with other families with fibrolamellar and they called us and asked if we'd be willing to uh, treat their a young adult. And can you talk specifically about what that MD Anderson protocol was? Yeah, it's still open now. It's using immune therapy and chemotherapy simultaneously. The oldest treatment for this disease is 5-FU and interferon, which has been around for 30 years, a generation. Dr. Kaseb at MD Anderson hypothesized that adding nivolumab, a new, uh, relatively new immune therapy drug called a checkpoint inhibitor uh, would improve the efficacy and of course survival. That was the nature of his protocol. However, it wasn't proven at that point. The logic behind it and the basic science behind it, however, were 
solid. So that prompted me to say, I'd be willing to try this experimental treatment if patients understood that we didn't know what the toxicity profile would be like or whether it would work. And that led to many patients coming here with the exact same request. Can we try this triple immune therapy approach uh, if we're not eligible or able to do it through the MD Anderson protocol? And I want to go back and ask you for the, the patients that we treat, maybe if you want to cite the numbers or just give a kind of a demographic profile, can you talk about you know, how many patients we see, where they're from in the world or in the country, and just give, a, give us a breakdown of kind of who these people are. Yes, absolutely. Currently, we have 78 patients with fibrolamellar carcinoma that we have seen at Rush, and another approximately 15 who we work with in consultation who have not been seen at Rush, but we help through video visits and emails and phone calls. This represents uh, 35 different states and 12 different countries. We have several from Australia, three from the Middle East, several from uh, Europe, a new patient from Taiwan, a couple of patients from Mexico. I want to get into a little bit of a deeper dive with Russia's approach to care, starting with the 5-FU and interferon protocol can you talk about what you did that was and is now different from what other institutions are doing for those who treat fibrolamellar cancer? Yes. So we eventually had 25 patients who were treated with this triple immune therapy and approximately two thirds had an excellent uh, response with shrinkage. And many of them went from being a non-surgical candidate to becoming a surgical candidate. And that's a key factor because two things are necessary for survival. One is the ability to do surgery, to remove all tumor that you can see. And number two, to have a systemic therapy that will prevent it from recurring. However, it didn't work for everybody. And so for those patients for whom it did not work or who they did not tolerate it, then the next innovation we had was using a well-known treatment with the drugs gemcitabine oxalplatinum, often called gemox in other uh, cancers and adding in the drug linvantinib. Now, this was built on observation that uh, adding Avastin, a so-called anti-angiogenic drug benefited different cancers in people getting gemox and also based on the children's oncology clinical trial, which was using a drug called sorafenib. We chose lenvantinib over the other two because it had a much broader number of targets that are important in the evolution of fibrolamellar and had less toxicity. And indeed in head-to-head trials for liver cancer, lenvantinib was superior to sorafenib. Our first two patients were both patients who were on hospice. Uh, One patient, 16 years old, and another patient, 19 years old, and had been told by everyone there was nothing they could do. This therapy, Gemox Lenvantinib, made all the visible tumor disappear in one of the patients. And the second patient, uh, she was able to get about 80% reduction and able to go to surgery where the surgeons could remove the residual disease. From that point on, we started to see the combination of Gemox Lenvantinib as a way to get uh, rapid tumor reduction, as we call it, debulking, and see it as a bridge to surgery. 
To date, we've had 29 patients get Gemox Linvantinib. We have 22 have, have been evaluable. And of those, only one has disease that has grown, although not a lot, by about 5%. And all the rest have had shrinkage of their cancer. Most of the patients have tolerated it well. Approximately two-thirds have had greater than 30% shrinkage. And most importantly of all, we've had seven patients so far that became a surgical candidate who were not surgical candidates and were allowed to get back into a remission. Could you talk about the recent two-year study from April 2019 to April 2021 that you did for patients taking the gemox levatinib combination? What were those results and what promise does it show for patients? Yes. Over a two-year period, we looked at the uh, patients we had treated with the combination of Gemox, Linvantinib. It was a total of 23 patients, 19 of them we could evaluate, meaning they had at least three months of therapy. And what we found was that all the patients had either stable disease or shrinkage. To date, there's only been six out of the 19 that have not had greater than 30% reduction in the size of their tumors. More importantly, it allowed uh, seven patients who previously were not surgical candidates to become surgical candidates, including one patient who was told the only option was a liver transplant. These patients now are in clinical remission, back into a surgical remission. We have many patients ongoing right now who continue with this treatment. For the most part, it's been well tolerated. There's been three that have had to stop because of side effects, but the shrinkage of the tumor tends to make the patients feel so much better that the side effects are far less of an issue than how much better they feel as the tumor shrinks. And are you using the, the gemox levatinib combination as the standard of care for any patients that you see, or do you go to another therapy? That's a great question. We use gemox levantinib as a way to debulk. And what I mean by that is to remove uh, large amounts of tumor, even if we can't remove all of it, just as we use interventional radiology for debulking, where large tumors can be killed with ablation or transarterial radioembolization. Uh, likewise, radiation oncology can sometimes target tumors and reduce them. All of these are techniques to make the patient a surgical candidate. So gemoxylinvantinib is for patients who have bulky disease, lots of large tumors, where the immune therapies, both the original one I talked about, triple immune therapy, and a, a one that we have been developing in the last two years that we call magic mic therapy is more of a long-term strategy, a strategy to engage your immune system so that the immune system will learn to recognize the antigens on the fibrolamellar cells and destroy them and hopefully provide lifelong protection. So it's a different concept, a short, intense therapy when we need to reduce the tumor, gemoxylinvantinib, a longer-term strategy when we need the immune system to be able to take over and protect the patient from recurrence. I have to ask you about the magic mic therapy because there's a really interesting story around that and how you develop that in, in coordination with the patient. So can you talk about what it is, you know, how you developed it and its effectiveness with patients thus far? 
Yes, this is one of my favorite stories. Well, it was a patient of mine who did not feel like they could handle the gemoxlinvantinib therapy and had had disease that had grown on the triple uh, therapy that I spoke about before. So we ended up over lots of conversations looking at using a little bit of both. The nivolumab, the immune therapy from the triple therapy approach and the lenvantinib from the gemox lenvantinib strategy. So nivolumab with lenvantinib and a drug called quercetin. What makes the story interesting is the patient I was talking to is my age and is one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. He's a nuclear physicist. He works at the borders of reality that for most of us find impossible to understand with uh, elementary particles and parallel universes. And so I thought, well, if this guy who is 10 times smarter than me wants to try this and he has the disease and we think it makes sense biologically, we should give it a try. And sure enough, it worked tremendously well. And that's how we came up with the moniker Magic Mike. Since then, we've had 14 patients use Magic Mike therapy and about half of them have had their tumors shrink. Another quarter, the tumors have stabilized and had no, no change, which in some cases can be a win. Uh, and then approximately one fourth, it didn't work well for. Are other hospitals who treat fibrolamellar cancer borrowing or mimicking magic mic therapy for their patients? Hopefully we're in communication. We have excellent communication with other doctors around the country. The majority of these patients I told you about, nearly all of them, in fact, are other places. And so it's all about good collaboration and good communication. And we will talk to them and email them and do video visits with the doctors and Zoom calls and say, why don't you try this therapy? We've had success with it. We've published abstracts and a poster, but we haven't yet been able to finish a full manuscript for magic mic therapy. But yes, people are, are copying it once they've uh, heard about it and we send them our information and our preliminary experience. The reality is when you have a very rare, terrible uh, disease, that's a very terrible disease that we know uh, most people can't survive without, without something dramatic, then that's your opportunity to try something new. As long as what you're trying um, has scientific rationale, uh, is logical and equally important that you, you follow very closely for any side effects. And then you publish those results, good or bad, so the world can learn from it. So that's how we've got to this. That will hopefully then lead to clinical trials where you can uh, study large group of people under very controlled circumstances, typically in a randomized fashion and decide once and for all which treatments are the best and which pieces of the treatment are necessary. But for now, patients have no options. They have nowhere else to go. There's only one clinical trial, the one at MD Anderson, that really has promise for helping patients. Most of the other clinical trials are very interesting, but they're far too preliminary to have any reasonable chance of helping the majority of people. So we want to be able to offer something to people beyond simply adding to the information being collected by our, our researchers. We want, a, we want a protocol that both generates research, but also has a high likelihood of helping the patient. That's always the tension. Most clinical trials, when they start in the beginning, the chances that they're going to help the patient are very small. It's there to develop information and data. And we want to try to do both at the same time. 
So I want to circle back with what we were talking earlier about with tumor debulking. And one of the treatments that is available is double vein portal embolization. And you had mentioned this before. Can you talk about how it's used in fibrolamellar treatment and the impact it's made on the care that Rush can provide patients? Yes, I'd be happy to. This uh, has really been pioneered by our interventional radiologist, Dr. Tassi, and his team here at Rush. So the idea is if tumor is occupying 80 to 90% of the liver, which unfortunately is very common, then you can't, even the most skilled surgeon removing all of that tumor will be faced with the problem of only 10% of the healthy liver remaining. And that's not enough. Post-operatively, you would have liver failure. So taking the observation that, that liver will regenerate quickly uh, once you do a liver surgery, the concept is let's get the healthy part of the liver to grow massively inside to inside the body prior to doing surgery. So then when you remove the diseased part of the liver, the leftover part will be large enough that it will function normally and you won't have post-op liver failure. So here's what we mean by double portal vein embolization. Uh, it means that you block the inflow of blood, which is the portal vein, but you also block the outflow, which is the hepatic vein. And by doing this, the part of the liver that is not being blocked will then grow very quickly. And the examples that we've had, we had two or 3% of the liver on one of our young patients was the only healthy part. And within 10 days, it had hypertrophied to be 20% of the liver now was healthy. So it had grown in size by about 300% in only 10 days. That then allowed our surgeon to go in and remove all of the diseased area and all the cancer. Afterwards, that 20% of healthy liver functioned completely normally it hypertrophied, and now the liver occupies the, the entire space where the tumor used to be. So it made a unresectable patient into a resectable patient, and it did it very quickly. Uh, older techniques take much longer, four to six weeks, which is too long for most patients to wait. What would you identify as some of the key challenges in treating this patient population? What's on the horizon at Rush for advancing new treatments for these patients? The main thing that we are doing to advance new treatments is sharing our tissue with research labs around the country, with Dr. Sandy Simon at Rochester, with the Nagurney Lab at UCLA. Uh, we've shared tissue with St. Jude, and we share tissue with Memorial Sloan Kettering and uh, Boston University of Massachusetts. So we are getting fresh tissue. We're getting it uh, sent out. We're doing DNA studies. We're looking at molecular circulating DNA in the blood and using the huge number of patients we have as an opportunity to feed data to basic researchers, to PhDs and other scientists, so that we can quickly advance. The only way basic scientists are going to learn more about this disease is getting more and more samples from a diversity of patients. Our job is, as we collect this data, to continue to publish what we have. So we've set up a large database, for example, that patients can enter their own data in addition to the data that we have about their signs and symptoms and lots of other factors to see if something will emerge when this data is all uh, combined. We can all learn from each other, see if there's patterns that help us 
predict this tumor, prevent this tumor, and understand how to treat this tumor. Dr. Kent, thank you so much for a great interview today. Thank you.